You are now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Five, six, seven, eight. Holla, boys and girls, it's the BGN. Coming from the Marvel world to the DC friends. All the way from Hollywood to the PCN. She defends everyone from sleazy men. Won't apologize for spitting Shonda Rhimes. The space that we make is never colonized. We're talking games and movies that actors were. Better shake your booties for Black Girl Nerds. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host along with Ryan. We have three incredible guests in two wonderful segments in this week's episode. First up is actor Sung Kang, who is no stranger to the Black Girl Nerds podcast. He is back again because he's in yet another Fast and Furious movie, this one aptly titled Fast X. Sung Kang is an American-born Korean actor most recognizable for his reoccurring role in the multi-billion dollar Fast and Furious franchise for Universal Pictures. Sung will reprise the role of Han Lu in Fast X, which is the highly anticipated 10th installment of the Fast franchise, starring opposite Vin Diesel, Charlize Theron, Jason Momoa, and Helen Mirren. The film will come out in theaters on May 19th. In our second segment, we welcome the producers and director of the FX series, The Secrets of Hillsong. First is Sarah Amos, who is the executive producer, and Stacey Lee, who is producer as well as director of the highly anticipated series. This is actually a four-part documentary series based on the explosive reporting of the megachurch's scandals by Vanity Fair journalists Alex French and Dan Adler. Directed by Stacey Lee, The Secrets of Hillsong features their first interviews with former pastors Carl and Laura Lentz since their public ousting from the church, which for years counted musicians, actors, athletes, and celebrities among its flock. Sarah Amos, executive producer, currently serves as vice president of development and production at Condé Nast Entertainment. And before joining CNE, Amos was the VP of development and production for Marvel Entertainment's new media division, overseeing the video live streaming and audio content slate, and was an executive producer on the Disney Plus Marvel series, Marvel's 616 and Marvel's Hero Project. Stacey Lee, who's the director and producer, is a New Zealand-born, California-based director whose work is defined by highly visual and emotive storytelling style. Her documentary work has received accolades, including Best Music Documentary at the 2022 MTV Movie and TV Awards, and has premiered at international film festivals, including Toronto, Cannes, and Tribeca. So... Sit back, relax, and enjoy this two-part episode of the Black Girl Nerds podcast featuring actors Sung Kang and producers Sarah Amos and Stacey Lee of the FX series, The Secrets of Hillsong. Welcome to the Black Girl Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Ryan. And, you know, as a podcaster, I try to keep my opinions and my reviews, you know, straight down the middle. Everybody has an opinion. Try to keep it non-biased. 
But if you have, if you've been listening to the Black Girl Nerds podcast for a while now, you know, when it comes to Fast and Furious, that line goes out the window for me. I'm ready to argue and throw down with anybody who has not got their tickets, who has not seen all nine films up till now. By the way, May 19th, go get your tickets right now for Fast 10 because I am such a fan of just the high-octane adrenaline rush that Fast and Furious creates when you step into the theater. So I'm so excited to be talking to Sun Kang today, actor. I want to throw in car enthusiast because I just love trolling his Instagram page. It's so cool. <laughs> but he is joining me today. How you doing, Sung? I'm doing great, Ryan. How are you? Doing so good. Thank you so much for talking to me. Um, I can't believe we're at Fast 10. This is, it's insane. It's crazy. I feel like it's a, my family knows now when the movies come out, like it's a yearly thing where it's like, everybody needs to go to the movies. Like I'm bidding the ticket. So everybody goes to the date to, to check out the movies. Mm -hmm. um, but before we really dive into that world though, I kind of want to ask you about being a car enthusiast and just the car culture. Cause I think that was for me, what was so cool that really pulled me into very, like even the first movie. What, um, well, oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, go ahead. That's, are you finished? No, no, no. With... I was just going to ask you to kind of dive, to kind of dive into like where that passion for cars comes from. Cause I think it's so cool how that can be seen with each character outside of their character in real life. Yeah. It's been really amazing to be part of you know a movie franchise that metaphorically gives you like this garage clicker to everybody's like personal car history their garage their connective tissue with cars you know um and you know over time i've been able to learn about cars that i you know i i initially didn't know you know i grew up with american you know iron i grew up loving cars like the Impala, you know, the Impala convertible, the Chevy Impala and the Ford Mustang that came, you know, that was in the Bullet movie, the 68 Fastback. So, you know, that was kind of my like car, you know, like, you know, like education or my car, you know, kind of like attachment through films and like Duke Hazard Chargers and Knight Rider, you know, the Trans Am and the Mm -hmm. And the cars that were in, you know, films like the Mustang from Spencer for Hire or Herbie the Love Bug, you know, these type <laughs> of cars define my car kind of, you know, like, you know, enthusiasm or DNA. But I also had the fortune of having people in the community. There was an old man, older gentleman that used to work on his 64 Impala um, in the neighborhood. And I used to be able to hang out in the garage with him. And very little words, but just, you know, methodically restoring his beloved 64 Chevy Impala convertible. You know, it was this like, you know, eggshell, you know, white with red interior. And he wanted everything to be, you know, original and OEM, which means how it looked like it was from the factory. And it taught me as a young man, you know, the connection between a person and their car, but also work ethic. You know, to mm. restore a car the way it came out of, you know, factory, you know, it takes methodical discipline and patience and research and understanding and respect for this vehicle and how it was designed by the original creators of the car and to, you know, to methodically spend time, you know, rebuilding this. And you go, why? Like, why, why do we need yeah. to do this? Like, you know, so it's beyond just like the physical element of the car, like this bunch of metal and rubber and, and plastic, but it's what it symbolized. And it symbolized in my youth as a kid, you know, you know, 
mentorship and, you know, teaching of, you know, the process of bringing a car back to life. So that serendipitously somehow, you know, maybe, you know, there are car gods that, you know, send you into, you know, certain movies, right? Because, you know, you know, there's more to be learned. And because of Fast and Han, you know, Han is beloved. Like all the characters are beloved in the car world and, you know, in the world in the world of entertainment and pop culture and to be able to have access to people's garages and then the person behind the garage, behind the car, it's helped me, you know, learn and, and, and have tools in my life toolbox to use and lean on to be a better, you know, husband or better, you know, brother, a better son, a better friend, a better leader, a better, you know, colleague, all of these things, you know, and it's, Wonderful to be able to parallel the lessons you get from working on like awesome cars and being around that community and then bring that to my career fast and furious and then share that, you know, knowledge and that experience and that connective tissue between car community fans and the fast and furious. Right. So, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's so you can you can tell that you're passionate about it just by hearing you speak, but also watching you guys just just, you know, with each each show and premieres and and interviews and everything like that. Um, but talking a little bit too about, um, you know, kind of getting to gain the knowledge and dig a little deeper. Um, I ran across this brand you have called Student Driver. You're doing with Daniel Wu. Can you kind of tell us about that? Yeah, Student Driver is, you know, almost a play on words for us. You know, there's the Student Driver. When we were, when I was 16, you know, you you couldn't wait to get your driver's license. Oh, you had your learner's yep. permit. You took driver's ed, and then you got your license. And then, you know, when you would go and learn how to drive, you would go to driving school and they would put this student driver sticker or that sticker would be on that car. The mm-hmm. teacher is, you know, you know, drive, you know, you and the teacher are driving around town learning how to be a driver, thus the student driver. And I was in my friend's uh, shop and he specializes in, in cars and modification for cars like brakes and wheels and suspension for race track driving at the highest level. Yeah. And I had a car there that I was, you know, trying to figure out some suspension for it to, to use on the track. And so, and somebody put a student driver magnet on the car and I thought it was hilarious. It was like, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. then, and then my, my friend who's the best driver, you know, amongst all of us, you know, professional level he walked by and he looks at that instead of making fun or laughing at it, he goes that's great because I'm a student driver you know I, I, every day I learn on the track and I was like what a great ethos what a great yeah. symbol but then not taking yourself so seriously like you know like death gang or driver elite or some you know something like that right you know <laughs> yeah. VIP club you know something like elitist <laughs> is like student driver we can all relate and then it yep. connects to life and you know and my approach to life and my friends ethos to life, like be a student, humble yourself. You know, there's always something to learn. And um, and with going fast in a car or car itself, every day you can learn something new and, you know, push it to like a higher level. Right. Yeah, definitely. And speaking yeah. of pushing it to the higher level, everybody, we're going to put this warner out here. These are like stunt drivers. So don't try this stuff at home when you go see the movie. I'll put that out there because I like the dive into the car culture just to make sure. But um, I want to kind of talk to you about or how much ever you can share going into Fast 10 about the cars. Because I was like, if there's one guy that knows how you drive on the track, it's Han. 
and and what each car kind of symbolizes in the trailer you say um we would have been there by now if roman wasn't driving fort knox on wheels I thought that was like one of the funniest lines because he's out. Roman always has something like flashy and just over the top, you know, where he's sliding on ice or something. That's just not conducive for him to get to where he needs to go. Can you mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about, I don't know, like how much you can share, but a little bit about the car. Like, I guess what Roman's driving, you usually have a Toyota. Like, I know you had the super last um, movie, which was super cool. Love the Toyota. Oh, yeah. You know, it's fast because we have the luxury, you know, to be representing the car community, you know, it's like cars, you know, I think the reason Fast and Furious, you know, you go back to the first one, the reason it worked or it connected with people is because it represented this like, you know, accessible aftermarket culture, people who modified their cars, they went to even, you know, AutoZone, they got something to put on their car yeah. to like make it extra, give it that magic sauce, you know, and, so each car to me is like a, a, a character within a movie, a supporting character that, you know, is attached and symbolizes and, and, and represents the spirit and the ethos and the mindset and the personality of each character. I mean, go, Roman is a perfect example. Ford knocks on wheels. The, the Lamborghini Huracan is like a bling, bling car. It's, 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 you know, it's painted in gold, of course, because it's Roman, you know, he's like, he has to be seen. This yeah. is a, you know, this is a mish secret mission, but he still has to be, you know, flashing and looking good when he's, you yeah, know, undercover, yeah. right? So thus, you know, it, it allows for comedy, like those lines, like, you know, we drive in this Ford Knox on wheels. And then you have, you know, you have Han and you have, you know, he, he, you know, because we, we, we discover him and meet him in Japan in Tokyo Drift, he had the Mazda RX-7, the legendary FD, you know, that's like so cool. one of the, yeah, yeah one, of, one of the great cars of the early 90s. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and it fits uh, Han so well because it has, you know, the veil sight Japanese body kit. And it's like, you know, you know, if Han has something, it's going to be, have that little extra, you know what I mean? Yeah, so, yep. Yeah. And, you know, and of course he had that Toyota you were, you were mentioning in Fast 9, the Supra. It was fitting, you know, it's like, what a like a modern kind you know like you know match for Han, you know in his resurrection. So that's great, you know. And also symbolizes the the re resurrection and the resurgence of you know the Supra because the Supra was a legendary car that was in Fast One, the orange car that Paul Walker oh, Ryan drives yeah. is a Supra. Okay. So yeah. symbolizing resurrection of not only the car but also the character of Han. So for car guys that can kind of see on this like minute like you know micro subtextual comparison mm -hmm. it's like there's some type of method behind the madness and then with this alfa romeo 1972 alfa romeo gtv that han has in fast 10 you know because that's an italian car alfa romeo has great legacy and you know in, in racing and in italian motorsports and motor history it's like a piece of art you know for people that love old vintage you know italian cars but it's understated, you know, it's it's like mm -hmm. the every everyday man, the every the every man's like, you know, like super beautiful Italian sports car, accessible. So that was, you know, the heist is in or the, you know, the secret mission is in Rome. So uh, you know, Han is paired up with uh, you know, the Alfa Romeo against the Lamborghini, you know, another legendary, you know, historical car company from Italy, however. You know, it represents something different. Like it represents bling and flash and like 
you know, presence, right? And yeah. money. And that's, you know, <laughs> that's like Rome has those, he's centric. He has, he values those things, right? So, yeah, and then Dom, right. yeah, and Dom, you know, anytime a Charger or Dominic Toretto car shows up, it's the big daddy of them all. You know, it's yeah. what, what represents, you know, power and, you know, you know, patience and legacy and history and America. American, you know, car history, like a Charger, a Dodge Charger with the blower and big fat wheels, slicks in the back, you know, Hoosier tires. It represents everything about American, like, you know, motor history, quarter mile history, raw, naturally aspirated, non, you know, modern technology. There's no computers on board. Everything was old American muscle. And, you know, that matches Toretto's personality. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's like, mm -hmm. It's it's so fitting, you know what I mean? So even the villains, you get the villains and, you, you know, they have these like vehicles or a McLaren that's like state of the art, looks like, you know, modern day, you know, Batmobile, it's up to no good, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah so they do a great job. Cool, yeah. 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 Dennis McCarthy is in charge of the cars since uh, Fast and Furious 3. And, you know, he's a car aficionado. He, he was a lover of cars, so. When you talk to somebody who spends his life around cars, it's easy to have this conversation and be able to contribute to the franchise. What character, what car represents, you know, the character? Like, what, how can we match it? But how can we make it like dope, right? And yep, like cool. Yep, and, yep. and for the car guys, you know, get them like excited. It's like, ah, oh, they put a, you know, Ford Falcon or they put a 68 Fastback Mustang, you know, a certain year Charger or Challenger. You know, the FD, the Japanese cars, and now, you know, Hans Alfa Romeo. The car guys love that stuff. You know, they yeah. just, you know, just go with the obvious, right? Or a new car or just take money from a sponsor. It's like Alfa Romeo fits this character, right? So, yeah, yeah it's pretty cool to be a part of something like that. And, and then also be asked and be invited to the conversation. You know, they know my enthusiasm and love affair for cars and old cars and you know, and I'd like to just, you know, donate, you know, and contribute to any, you know, thoughts I might have. And they're so, everyone's so welcome, you know, because, you know, I think everyone's earned a seat at the table. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. 10 years in, you guys have definitely earned a seat and it's like a souped up seat, right? Like it's always got some kind of flair to it, the way you guys work the machine. And I, and I like too, like you said, how it, I love how it's brought into the story. It's not just like you have this flashy car, you're just doing this just to do it. You know, we like that because it's the adrenaline rush, you know, puts you in the seat, but it explains where each character, because it's like a long drawn out TV show. If you really follow the saga and where you guys have been at and how the characters develop, you know, uh, F9, we got to see Letty on a motorcycle. So it's like these little like intricate change-ups, you know, that kind of show exactly where you guys are as far as the tech and, and, um, you know, what these cars are supposed to symbolize as you're representing the team and where the team is now. And um, kind of going into um, F10, what does it take or how long does it take you guys when it comes to like these epic chase scenes? And, you know, the technology is just insane because you could have, like you said, you could have a Dodge Charger that's so at the very level, just like a basic car, if you want to think about it. A basic, you know, you got your engine, you got your blower, but you're putting magnets in the back of it you know, to kind of amp it up, to kind of give it a little extra judge for whatever they need for the mission. What, um, so how long are you guys on set trying to like, how many days does it take? What all goes and is involved in that? Um, it's about, you know, good, solid four months of 
you know, production, like you're, you know, it could be like, you know, three to six months on average wow. for a yeah. movie this size, you know, and there's usually a first unit that's all the actors and all the dialogue and all the major like set things. And then the action is like a second unit team in a different country. Like, you know, that we have a, a, a gentleman, a master of his craft, Spiro, who's been working with us for, you know, most of the Fast and Furious. And he goes and he shoots the, you know, the exterior action stuff. And we're not even there. And then, you know, they look at that and they go, we need a interior shot of Han, like turning the steering wheel. You see the car drifting from outside and we got to punch in to get the emotion, the connective. And that, like you said, is like, you know, the, the beauty of technology today. You have green screen, blue screen, you have, you know, volume LED screens now where that could perfectly match yeah. the background, right? With like this GPS, like, you know, scanned environment. So even mimics like, you know, the car turning to match, like if the car's turning around the corner. So when we go to punch in and the background isn't even there, they put in later, it moves with the car and there are these gimbals, hydraulic gimbals, they put the car mm -hmm. on and they have multiple versions of the car where they cut the roof off so cameras here or cut the floor off and the cameras here or cut half the car so the camera can go around and all of these like gimbal like cameras you know that are you know that can move and also you know there's face replacement like there might be a medium shot of stunt driver like you know turning and it's like you know that's the shot the director wants to use but it's his face but he has a wig on he's wearing my costume he has these dots on his face and then you know, there's this machine with, you know, hundreds of cameras and they, it does a 3D scan and, a, oh. you know, a, a, you know, like, you know, it takes all these multiple pictures of you, you know, reenacting emotion and excitement. So it could be smiling or like, ah, oh, fear or like anticipation. And then they do face replacement. So, you know, that stuff is post-production where, you know, they have to do the stunts and then we have to do close-up matches and green screen, which is super boring if you ever go to a set you don't ever go on a green screen day because <laughs> no one knows what you're doing it's like you know let's yeah. say the car's like you know cameras in front of me and you guys right. you know you come to visit and it's just a big blue screen and and the director's like okay the car's coming react but you see nothing yeah you see nothing and there's a bunch of dudes in the back it's like pushing the car upside down you know up and down to mimic like the car's driving because you don't, you don't see that part of the car it's just maybe this yeah. much of me so they're like bouncing and then he's like, all right, you know, the, the bomb's coming your way, react. And you're like, which way? Where do I look? Where, you know, so it's a lot of that. So that's yeah, where yeah. the acting, right? You got to come in and right, act. Yeah. Right? So yeah. people have to remember, you know, it's a play. It's manu manufactured storyline, right? So, you know, there's action and then there's connective tissue with the actors and close-ups and, you know, inserts like, you know, like the shift going down or the, yeah. the foot hitting the throttle. All these things, it's, you know, methodically gathered, right? So, right, you know, yeah. you have to set up and there's a cadence and one shot to grab like the hand shifting, you know, that could take like an hour and a half, two hours Ooh, lighting. Yeah, and yeah. Getting, you know, they're like, hey, you know, it, it's, it looks so, it doesn't match, doesn't feel like it's matching the exterior stunt because when he shifts, the car's not moving. So they go, okay, how about we shake the car? We're shaking the car and the camera, you know, it's like, you get that and you go, okay. So it's manufactured. A lot of it is 
fake. You know what I mean? It's, it's yeah. pretend, right? So, yeah. yeah. But it's still so yeah. cool. Like you said, even here you describe that you don't get to hear that all the time, just to know the details that go into being able to shoot that. Because like you said, most people think, you know, why you have to put the, you know, the disclaimer on it that you just get in the car, you just zooming down, like, you know, whatever highway or whatever. It's like, it's kind of more technical. Like if you're just looking at that, it wouldn't be as high, um, you know, high adrenaline, high rush. Like you can't have the cars flying and everything. So it's, yeah. it's a real cool process. Yeah. That's why, you know, at the end of the day, I, I tell people, it's like, you know, it's a movie, you know, it's, it's, it's Hollywood. When the reason yeah. I also love Fast 10 is like, you know, I feel like, oh man, what a move, great movie to be a part of, to contribute to this, you know, re reintroduction and resurgence of participating in like an actual theater with you know, fellow audience members, like going back to the movie theater, yeah. but you need the right call to action. You know, movie tickets are crazy expensive. Like you take, you know, one kid at 60 bucks for two people yep. after you have mm -hmm. popcorn. Right. So how are we going to, you know, bring them back and you know, what is the, the, the trade-off, right? Like, you know, what do you get? And it's fast 10 is like a fun roller coaster right that's the movie you want to go see in the theater that's exactly. the movie where yep i have no problem like someone spending 60 dollars to go see this because i feel like we've given them that what's you know oh yeah you know like in exchange right so um it's just great you know it has yeah you know it has the old familiar characters you know we're getting older but it's like ah oh, this one <laughs> you know you like them old i like them with a few wrinkles you know like yeah i like these yeah. new characters it's nice to have fresh new you know, characters and family members come in and, you know, you know, make it excitement, you know, parties, it's, it's, it's much better when you have new attendees constantly with the old, if it's the same yeah. old people, You're like, you know, oh. it's like, I've seen yeah. you at the last party, you know what I mean? So you want to, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love, I love that. And speaking to of like um, old people kind of coming back here, we have with Han and Shaw, that is the coolest like dynamic ever. If you like, you don't think about it at first being a genius combination to put these two together, but it's such an interesting thing. Um, that was a big talk after the movie aired. Everybody was talking about the mid credit scene between you and, and, and Jason Statham, but now they just released a clip of what happens after that scene, after Han comes to the door. When he reaches in the clip, he reaches for like snacks, but looks like he's getting ready to do something violent or whatever Han does. Do you think he did that intentionally? Like, is it a whole thing with Han to kind of poke at Shaw? Because it's like, dude, you you like you try to kill me. Like, what's what's the deal? What's going on? Is it a is it always a thing to kind of poke at him? And is that the is that the relationship now going to uh fast in? Yeah, you know it, that that scene took took a lot of you know discussion and collaboration and contribution from the whole team to go. What is this notion and idea of justice for Han? Like, is he what's why is he coming to, you know, come see Shaw? And is this payoff justice for Han that everybody, you know, you know is is anticipating and waiting for? Like, what is that? You know, and it, and originally, you know, it could have been just like this, you know, you know, surface level one dimension where it's just two people just you know like taking swings at each other, right? And yeah. a fight, and that's it. It's like, is that the justice that Han wanted? You, know, you have to remember, you know, you know, Shaw at the end of the day didn't do anything wrong because he was set up by Mr. Nobody and Han to fake the death or to right. to 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 show the world that this, you know, this death happened, but that Han snuck away and went and raised the L, right? So it was a cover. So Han can't really be mad. You know, he can't be mad at Shaw because he set him up. He should be thankful. And 
in fast eight, you know, there was this, you know, I think the, in the, the, the initial campaign for justice for Han and wanting yeah. to bring him back and give him justice is how could this guy Shah who killed the beloved family member be invited to the family, you know, family barbecue table? Like how, how all of a sudden are you family? It made no sense. It was almost like, you know, disrespecting or disregarding a character that the fans, you know, loved and mm -hmm. grew up with. And, that was beautiful to where, you know, Universal was like, oh, we have to listen. Our success has been based on fan contribution and fan, like, you know, requests and fan support. So it was easy. Like, you know, Vin's always about listening to the fans, you know, and, and you know, and, and uses social media to listen, to hear like, hey, what is this call to action that we can implement into the storyline, right? Yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, and, and after COVID and after all these things in the world that are all about, you know, you know, you know, headlines about divisiveness and, and separation, is it just two people fighting? And to me, it was awesome that Louis and the, and the producers and the studio and Jason Statham, we had like, you know, real conversations about what is justice? What is the justice that's going to be served here? And the justice is that, you know, Shaw needs to be part of the family. The justice is that finally he has earned his place at the at the barbecue table because in that, you know, I don't know, people, is this coming after the people see the movie or before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, okay, it's going to so, come, come before. So it's going to come before. So just in the clip, only thing they show is um, the chips fall out and they just get in a fight. And then he's like, yeah. let's dig some graves. And it kind of ends there. Yeah, yeah. So I shouldn't, I don't want to spoil anything, but you know, to, to explore this theme of what is the justice for Han, yeah. right? What yeah. does that mean? You know, and it went beyond just what, you know, the justice for Han was. It it kind of represented the whole theme of the, of, of, of the, you know, the battle between Shaw and Han and the, and, and, you know, and the why, and then the result of it is like, yeah. was justice served? And I think it was, I think when people see it, they'll go, Huh, yeah, that actually makes sense. You know what I mean, and it's the higher road. It's the I think more positive contribution, right? And it was pretty cool to be part of that narrative and that discussion to, to you know, put the fight together. The physical aspect of it is you know repetition and choreography, but then yeah. a great fight is like why are they fighting? Why is what does that blow mean? Yeah. What does that fall mean? You know what is you know taking somebody out mean? Right. Yeah, all that. So if everything has a purpose, it connects to like eventually the overall theme of the scene, the characters conflict with each other, you know, their theme, the theme of the scenes and then the overall movie. And it just somehow, you know, has like a beautiful melody to it. Yeah. And I think it was, I felt like, you know, justice was served, you know, yeah. in this subtle non like soapbox like hey we did it you know? <laughs> yeah so, yeah yeah as uh, so one more last teaser i want to get everybody because i could sit here and talk to you all day because this is so fun just hearing you talk about and dive into like the different scenes and the characters um that we don't get to get all the time but okay one of the things that for me really evolved this franchise was fast five when they got into this fifth this fifth film it felt like the team came together everybody had a place everybody had a role and it seemed like the franchise just flipped, like something changed where you were like, okay, let's go in a good way where it was like, okay, let's go to the movies. You know, this is, this is taking a whole new level when it's talking about protecting the family, what it means to have respect, you know, that drive that is, that's pulling the team. 
why are we revisiting like in your opinion or and um you know as far as like the past coming back to haunt the team in a sense why are we revisiting five do you feel in fast 10 what was the need to kind of do you feel was the need to kind of go back to that well again i mean it's overused you know and you know i think it would it goes into you know you know a, a a arc if you will there's a journey to the the theme of family at first it's like oh great theme and then it becomes overused and hokey and you become a meme but then you know, we're back at it. We're back at like, you know, somebody said that there's the word family used 16 times in fast 10, 16 times, 16, right? So they're knocking, <laughs> knocking it on your head. But, yeah, you know, again, that's been our magic recipe. That's been part of our, you know, secret sauce, if you yeah. will, you know, and, mm -hmm. and the that's villain. Right. Yeah. The villain's motivation is what? Family. Family. Yeah. That, that's why he's, he's doing what he's doing with, if he didn't have family, you know, and, and it, it, he would. There's no point in him being so angry at everybody, right? Like, there's, mm. there's no, there's no bad guy. You know what I mean? So, because of the love of his family and what's been done, now he's like, he's gonna go and tear up another person's family. What's the most important thing to Dominic Toretto? Family. So it's just a, like, organic, simple, right? But yep. simple sometimes, you know, is super complex to make it look simple, and then over mm. and over and over. But again, like, you know, everybody in the world can relate with family, it, it, good or bad, right? right? You exactly. can relate with it, right? Just like a car is like, they become part of your family, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, the the whole ex point of, like you said, in Fast Five, like these characters coming in and all these other characters that have storylines that, are, you know, touch, you know, the audience members in different ways and represents them. It's like the family, you know, that's yeah. why we're okay with seeing all these different faces and personalities because the through line and the connected tissue is that they're only there together purely because of family. Yeah, they like cars and all that stuff. That's great. But if they didn't love each other and they weren't there, all these themes of like, I'm going to die for you. You know, it's like till the death, you know, one last ride, You're like, with, you know, with or without you, I'm, without you, there's no point. All this yeah. stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of it. And, and and then you realize, at first you're like lip service. It's like, yeah, whatever. It's like Hollywood. It doesn't mean anything. It's not real. Then you lose a family member. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we all lost together. Not just, it wasn't fake. It became real. Then you go, yeah. oh, it is, it does, it, 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 it is real. Because you, you lose somebody, you lose family. And it's like, it's not even a movie. You know, it's not a movie. You, it, yeah. you think the movie prepares you to lose that. It's not that. It's way darker and it's mm -hmm. lonely and sad and like it's bullshit. You know what I mean? Yeah. The movie, yeah. So you, you lose, someone dies, you turn it off, you forget, you walk away. It was fake. It was fake. That's the insurance blanket, right? So, yeah. you know, again, family somehow has been gifted to us in, in theme and then in life, it, you know, reminds us the importance of what family is and yeah. every day, you know, it's like the movie itself, what fast 10, what people are going to see is a reflection of the family that has been put together to make such a wonderful like continuation because come on, this is number 10. It should be dead by now. You're like, how do you keep it going? How do you keep it exciting? Yeah. That's like, what how, a lot of, yeah. 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 How, how do you make, how do you keep it relevant? How do you yeah. keep it needed? Do we need another fast? I think so. I do. I think in 10. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. We need 10. 
You know, we need 10. Yeah. It's the simple lesson after 10, all cool cars, all this and that is people walk away and go, yeah, family is important. We've done our job. Yeah. Right? We've done yeah. our job. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you addressed that because that's one of my main pet peeves. I hate when people say like, oh, it should have been done at da 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 And when we do this, I'm like, no, it's like, obviously the stunts are, you know, they have to get bigger. It has to get, because like you said, that value of coming to the movies, if you see it in IMAX, however you see it, right? But it's the idea of this family and following these characters and what's important. And, you know, when the person dies, you're like, Okay, well, there's repercussions for that, right? Because you just came at this man's family, somebody that's important to him, that's held him down and ride with him. So now we have a problem. And just those core values of, like you said, if one audience member takes that away, that core value of respect and what loyalty means, you know, is I think something that for me always keeps me coming back. And I hope there are tons of spinoffs to come and things that happen after 10. Um, that'll be so cool. But I want to jump real quick before we wrap to another franchise you got to be a part of, which I thought was so cool, Star Wars. Um, <laughs> this mm -hmm. character was so... See you as the fifth brother. First of all, how long did makeup take? How long did hair and makeup take for this role? Four hours. Four hours. Ooh. By the time we got up fast, it was four hours. You know, the first yeah. few times building it, it's like six hours, seven hours. It's like, it was a lot of makeup. You know, but... Hey, it, it was, you know, I, I played dress up, you know, when I was a kid and, you know, you know, I, I wore Halloween costumes. It wasn't even Halloween. You know, I wore Halloween costumes during Easter. You know what I mean? It's because especially the Star Wars stuff, you know, the, yeah. the Halloween, you know, plastic mask and stuff after school as a kid, I would come, you know, run home and my friends and I would put together, you know, like paper towel rolls and make lifesavers and, mm -hmm. and uh, lightsabers and, you know, and pretend and, you know, use our imagination and to be able to now, sit in a makeup chair with like, you know, Hollywood, like masters of their, you know, prosthetics and effects and visual effects and build this character and be part of the Star Wars universe and be on set with Darth Vader. Right. Ooh, yeah. Come on. Yeah, I was yeah. like, yo, this is crazy. This was like, you know, every day to see a whole bunch of stormtroopers around you and to be able to touch it and have a mm -hmm. lightsaber of your own and be able to be around all of these other, you know, Star Wars, like lovers and, and it was one of the first Star Wars projects shot in LA. So it was exciting. You know, every day was exciting yeah. because very, very few people in LA and Hollywood got to work on a Star Wars project because they were, they were shot in England and Europe yeah. and all over the world. So it's like a bunch of kids. I mean, some of the PAs were so young and, you know, they were probably in their like early 20s. And I would ask them, I go, are you excited to be a part of this? And they're like, actually, my parents are more excited that I'm on this job. I told them I was on a Star Wars Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> and they were like freaking out. You know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty cool. You know what I mean? Super yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Bucket list yeah. stuff. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, this reached a lot of like, that's the thing about Star Wars is so many different generations, but it was so cool to see you in Obi-Wan because I was like, it took me a minute to figure out it was you because, you know, you didn't have, it's not the cool hair, right? Like we get to see what Han, so it took me a minute to figure out who it was, but the anger was just like over the top, hilarious sometimes where it was just like, he wanted to be that person that was like the right hand um you know to the to the to Moff Gideon but it was you did I was just a phenomenal job I had to mention that before we go because I, I thought that oh, was so cool to thank see you that. thank you it, I mean as an actor it's awesome to hear that hey, I didn't even know that was you right and that's mm -hmm. kind of the, you know the cool effect of that character you know and it's like as an actor it's like you know I feel 
it's 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 fun you know and it's like yep. a great sense of accomplishment to be able to you know disappear into a role right and and then also bring life to something that was you know you know non-existent on, on movie form it was and, and there's you know in the animation there's there's fifth brother right so but to yeah. bring a character to life that's already you know in the zeitgeist right and it's mm -hmm. like people are curious it's pretty cool it's pretty yeah. cool. I don't know if yeah. I want to go through four hours of makeup every day, you know, from I was gonna ask you, would you do like if they pick something else out, would you do it again? Or was it the makeup was a lot or you know, I don't know. I mean it all depends. If fifth brother, like I was I was talking to the director and I you know, I said, you know, I know we might not have the luxury of like putting this into the show, but I, I need to know why fifth brother is fifth brother. Why is he a dark Jedi? Yeah. Where where did he grow up like why did he why is he angry like why did he mm -hmm. choose the dark side like what was his family like did his family get taken from him and that anger made him like want to enact revenge to the jedis because he blames them and i was yeah. like i want to see an origin story of the fifth yeah, brother because yeah. right yeah yeah so yeah i'll be curious because yeah he yeah you definitely played that where it was like so many different hints that we didn't get to play through but you were so curious like what yeah. is going on? Like why is he so like you know so intense in this scene? And it's like what is going? Like what else do we not know about this character? So yeah, yeah I'm why hoping, doesn't... hopefully we'll put it out in the universe and it'll happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why doesn't he have lotion for his chap skin, his dry face? They don't have. They don't have a CVS. They don't have a CVS. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh, the dog is so cute. It's so, you guys cannot see right now. It was so cute. So here, cute. Come here. Meet Teji, DJ. <laughs> oh, okay. say hi. Did you say, say PJ? Hi. Oh my gosh. DJ. Oh, DJ. DJ. Yeah. Teji means pig in Korean. He's a porker. Porker. <laughs> he's so cute. So yeah, cute. So cute. Such a good dog. <laughs> it's like a big teddy so bear. So cute. Yeah, he is. He's so um, sweet. Do you want, uh, as we kind of leave here, are you curious about trying any different genres? Because I love you in action. I was thinking, I'm like, I'm hoping he does something else, martial arts related or action war as he leaves. Do you, is there any kind of other genre though that you want to be into? Or are those kind of like your, like, this is where I I love to hang out at? Well, I love comedy. You know, I love the reaction as well of, you know, getting you know people excited and, you know, edge of the seat type of, you mm -hmm. know, films. But then I also love when people laugh you know and i like yeah. to laugh right so you know i i think you know people see me as this you know kind of dry-witted like you know tough guy right and you know maybe like connected to action but now underneath all that is you know a hilarious <laughs> human being right funniest yeah. person i know you know <laughs> <laughs> well i don't know if they pay attention to some of those lines you throw out in fast and furious it's pretty funny like you do it with a straight funny. face which i don't know how you do yeah. it i'm like i'm yeah. always dying laughing <laughs> yeah, I'm laughing inside. I'm laughing inside. I, I can hold it, you know? So. Well, you guys, May 19th, hope you, the, the tickets are already out. Go get your tickets, get ready, you know, see it however you can, see it multiple times. I know I am. Sung, I appreciate you. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for all your support. And yeah, thank you for just being with us on this journey, you know? So, you know, it's, it's without support. You know, like people like yourself, it's like, you know, we have no shot. So thank you. Thank you. Pleasure, Dama. I appreciate it. Uh, well, first and foremost, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to Black Girl Nerds. I really appreciate it. 
I was really excited to watch this documentary. I have been down this rabbit hole of watching the Hillsong scandal since it first broke. I've seen all of the documentaries on YouTube. There was another documentary that had come out, um, watched that. So I feel like I'm an expert on all things Hillsong since everything happened and went downhill, um, especially after the, the Carl Lentz uh, scandal, that one first. Uh, so I, I want to start with you, Sarah. Uh, I, you know, obviously I started finding out about this first from Carl Lentz when his scandal first broke. And um, this particular documentary, The Secrets of Hillsong, it was a very eye-opening doc. And I've seen a number of these docs um, about the rise and fall of the megachurch. But I have to know, how did your team manage to get Carl Lentz to speak on the record about this? Because previous documentaries, he's not spoken before, but this is the first one, if I'm not mistaken, where he's actually on the record talking about what happened. It is. Um, well, thank you so much for having us to talk about this. And, and thank you for, after all, watching all the other Hillsong docs, continuing to watch <laughs> them and watch ours. Um, I think, you know, everything about this project is really such a team effort between Vanity Fair Studios, between the folks at Scout Productions, between um, FX, and then obviously Stacy, our incredible director, and our journalists, uh, Dan and Alex. And I think, you know, our goal was to try to be the most definitive and, and kind of far-reaching look at what is a massive organization that has decades of stories and complex nuances to delve into. And so we really took our time. And Carl is really a testament to the incredible work of Scout and one of our other executive producers, David Collins, who truly just kind of reached out to him on DM. David had also been a member of Hillsong and reached out to him and was like, hey, we'd like to tell your story. Uh, and from there, the conversations really began. And then simultaneously, Dan and Alex obviously had done some really in-depth, incredible work in Vanity Fair and started to build a lot of relationships with congregants, with folks going as far back as New Zealand and Australia who kind of knew the origins of Hillsong. And it was really about uh, us bringing Stacy in as our director and engaging with all of the different sources we had gathered and um, just having a dialogue with them and saying, hey, we want to tell this story and we want to give everyone a chance to tell their perspective. And we get that religion is complicated and we get that race is complicated and gender and sexuality is complicated. And we're not trying to paint anyone as good or evil. We are just trying to understand what really has gone on in this church and what people's experiences have been. And luckily, um, everyone was really generous with their time and with their trust on every level um, and kind of opened up and allowed us to tell what I at least think is, you know, the most detailed and um, definitive version so far of, of what's really been going on at Hillsong. Absolutely. It, it, I mean, it was eye-opening. There was a lot of information that I thought I knew that I did not know in this documentary. Um, Stacy, for you, there, there's a number of producers behind this series and you serve as both producer and director. So can you share what your role as a director was working on this particular series? Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, as Sarah said, like we took our time with this documentary. I think there was a lot of 
probably more pop culture moments, more relevant moments. We could have put the series in the world if we like rushed it, but we're literally walking into people's worst moment in their lives. And this is not stuff that you can just show up with a camera and a microphone and say, tell me all about it and expect great results. You know, um, we did like months of pre-interviews. So by the time I come on board and Dan and Alex and Sarah have like, we're um, introduced to existing subjects, we're finding new ones, all these kind of things. And we just, we spent a long time just listening to the holistic story and what became apparent pretty quickly is what someone was saying about their experience in 2015 New York City was very similar to the experience of what someone was saying in 1975 Lower Hutt, New Zealand. The themes across the story echo and repeat over time. So we knew very early on that the shape of this story, obviously in the reporting, it very much centers on Carl because that's everybody's way in. Everyone thought Carl was Hillsong, me included. And, and so part of this is really about peeling back the layers to go all the way back to origins to figure out not just how this happens, but why. Um, so as a director on this, you know, obviously so much of it is forging these relationships. I mean, a lot of these, these pre-interviews, not everyone was on camera, but certainly we made sure to listen and really hear the themes that were like rising up over and over again so we could really get a sense of like how we wanted the story to take a shape then from there of course it's like really fostering those relationships like even to this day we don't just walk into the interview get the interview and say thanks bye we still have connections and relationships and an ongoing conversation because this isn't just uh, a story of you know a church that fell this is really traumatic there's abuse involved there's you know race issues involved there's all sorts of uh, really hard um and uncomfortable things to untangle and it was really important for us to take our time with that doing that so the the filming process was also long we didn't just do one interview oftentimes and, and we went back to people to get more to get a, an evolved thought you know, what they maybe came into originally might be slightly different a couple of months later with the hindsight or even with new information, because this was, there was more stuff coming out as we were making it. Um, and then of course, in the editorial, like I'm a director that's heavily involved in the edit, you know, I, I, I really also too, because the, the trust um, and the relationships that I foster throughout the filmmaking process also need to be honored within the editorial. It's very easy to make the story a scandal, salacious, sensational thing about a pastor and having an affair, but the story is not that. It's so much more than that. And so to be able to have that nuance and that uh, ethics and the integrity to really be able to put the story together in the edit and in the way that it was told, yeah, it takes a lot of work. And this was I mean, not going to lie, it was definitely a tough one. <laughs> yeah, you guys unpacked a lot. Uh, again, like there was just so much information that I did not know that is uh, revealed in this documentary. Uh, Sarah, back over to you. The docuseries does an incredible job of laying out the framework behind how the church functions institutionally and the very rules that they set in place for the pastors and their staff which ends up hurting them in the end. So how did you know where to start and where to end crafting the narrative for this docuseries? Yeah, so it's, uh, 
the Vanity Fair piece had focused a lot on Carl and what went on in the New York church. And I think for so many people, the first understanding, and if you ask them, what do you know about Hillsong? It begins and ends with Carl and the New York experience and maybe some of the music. Um, and what we really wanted to do with this piece is what we're trying to do across the whole slate that we have as Vanity Fair Studios, which is, okay, we put out an amazing piece of journalism. If we had six more months, if we had a year, if we had more resources, where would we wanna go with it next? And we immediately saw the Houstons as being that question we wanted to answer, right? Um, because you don't just appear out of thin air. The church just doesn't show up one day in New York. It comes from somewhere. And we knew that there was more to the story to unpack there. And as we started working with Stacy and uh, and the scout team, we really began to understand that we needed to start the story with Carl in New York because it was an entry point for so many people. And then from there, we very quickly understood that there was an arc and a, a deeper story we could tell going then back to Brian and Bobby and then looking at Frank, right? It is it is a generational story in which so much of what Brian built was built off of a foundation of Frank and so much of what Carl was building and emulating was built off a of foundation of Brian. And so it really quickly became apparent to us that, um, it was, it was kind of like an onion, right? We wanted to start with one layer and then just keep peeling back in attempts to answer as many of the questions as we could about how, how it got to the final place that it did and what that did to all the people involved. Because I do think it's, it is a flashy pastor and it is a lot of celebrities but underneath that are a lot of real people along the way. And it was really important to us that we give them a chance to tell their stories um, along every step. Yeah, it's it's very um, crafty to do it that way because you, you hook people in by getting them in by, they know about Carl and they know about, you know, Justin Bieber being there and Selena Gomez being an attendee of Hillsong. So everybody knows the celebrity of it all, but then uncovering the origin story as we see further episodes in the docu-series, which is where it really all started. Um, Stacy, for you, I was also shocked that Laura Lentz spoke on the record in this docuseries and how candid she was about Carl's other extramarital encounter with their nanny. This this was a story that really hasn't been scrutinized much. So um, did you or Laura elect to add that situation to this series? Look, we wanted to talk about it all because what that incident talks about, again, is, is power structures and power dynamics. Um, Laura's inclusion was incredibly important for us. Obviously, everyone gets excited about the sticky, exciting, shiny Carl, but Laura is really incredibly fascinating. She, you know, grew up within the umbrella of of the the Houston kind of network. She was what what some would say Hillsong royalty. She barbecued with them. She vacationed with them. Like she knows Hillsong from like its intimate beginnings, and. So 
as well as that, obviously she's married to Carl, so she has that. So for for her story, it's this incredible like double betrayal. The betrayal, not just obviously of her husband and this very public uh, infidelity, but also the betrayal of her church. You know, we always talk about like really you, you realize why people are attracted to church because it's a place of safety, it's a place of refuge, it's a place of community. And here is a woman who's going through probably the worst moment in her life. And this is supposedly, as they like to throw around a lot, her church family. And it was really what we really were curious about and unpacking is how does your church family that you have known, not just for like the last 10 years and you've made a bunch of money with them, you literally have known them since your birth, since you're in, in diapers. How how do they just so instantly turn your their back on on you and in your moment of need and that was something that was really interesting for us just in terms of it really told us a lot about the power dynamics uh the cutthroatness of it all the the goals of the church you know is the church really about you know community and 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 really working through these issues or whatever it is together or is it about saving face and protecting the business and making sure that we don't turn people away from god slash tithing bins you know there's a lot uh, to unpack with their dynamic and their relationship. And Laura Lentz, you know, her perspective, the, the person who's betrayed, isn't one that's often looked at or told. And that was something that was really fascinating to all of us. Yeah. 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 I, that was new information for me <laughs> with that whole storyline. Sarah, was there new information that you learned while you were involved with producing this series about Hillsong? Um, when you were working and crafting this together? Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, I think every time we got on the phone with someone to to hear their story, it it just shone so much more light as to how Hillsong works as a business. I mean, I, we are still learning new information, right? Like we were deep, deep in the edit when the uh, the news came out in Parliament down in Australia about Brian Houston and his finances. And it was stuff that we had suspected. It was stuff that we had tried to dig into, but to suddenly have it there in black and white was pretty shocking, um, both as a journalist, but also as a producer who at that point was on deadline. And Stacey and I found ourselves on a lot of calls being like, we can't not include this, but also like we were supposed to deliver four days ago. What are we going to do? So I think, you know, that the new information that's continuing to come up about the Houston's has been really shocking and interesting. Um, and I also think just listening to the stories of the congregants and what surprises me the most is how much, despite the failures often of the church, and the personal kind of struggles that people faced, I do always find it really heartening how much, how many people still have their faith and still have their um, passion for true community and for the importance of religion, whatever that might be in their lives. Um, I always go into one of these projects hoping that at the end of it, we come out with a project that can leave people still optimistic. And I, I do think that there's a lot of um, accountability that is needed. There's a lot more transparency that is needed 
But I do hope that viewers also take away that there are a lot of really incredibly strong, resilient people who were part of Hillsong in various ways and stages who have come out on the other side, not bitter against religion or faith as a concept um, and really kind of took took a risk and really went out on a limb to speak out not because they are looking to persecute anyone, but because they really want to make organized religion into the thing that they see it can be and 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 help others. My my last question uh, for you, Stacy. You know, as I mentioned at the top of this interview, I've seen many Hillsong documentaries and information on YouTube, news items, um, there's still so much more story to tell. And uh, I'm, I'm curious to know, I mean, Brian Houston is still under litigation. I'm sure there's more information that will be revealed about what he's been doing. Um, so will we see like a part two to this series? Is there gonna be more uh, that we'll see reported as these crimes are unveiled and, and released to the public? I mean, Ultimately, that's up to the audience <laughs> and the people that show up for this. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, this is an ongoing story. And at a certain point in time, we had to put our pencils down, even if, if it was at what we felt was like, oh, my gosh, we finally see what we've always suspected. Like, I think there is that and there is there is so much more. I think what this documentary has done and the timing of it and, you know, all the research um, and very kind of, you know, buttoned up journalism that has gone into this is really shown and created a case for why these institutions can be incredibly problematic. And now there's now there's stories, now there's archive, now there's, you know, documentation that exists in, in the form of this documentary in one place. There's zero said that is definitive, that is speaks to the heart of the issues from the people who were there as part of it and I think that this work is like has been yeah I mean we're it's incredibly important to be able to bring truth to these kind of institutions and the people who are part of this project were, were incredibly brave you know I can't underestimate how many decades of silence that have been gone by because people have not been able to speak up or or have feared what might happen if they do so I think what we hope with this documentary is it allows more voices to come forward. It allows more truth to come out even after this happens. And then, yeah, I mean, whatever happens with Hillsong, maybe that writes itself. <laughs> and we, we will be here for it. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to Black Girl Nerds. I really appreciate it. This was an eye-opening doc. And anybody who's like me that has fallen into the rabbit hole of All Things Hillsong will really enjoy this docu-series. You guys did a really great job of unpacking everything from beginning to end. Thank you. Thank you so much for the time and the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Black Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Broadnax. The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find various episodes of the Black Girl Nerds podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Audioboom, Google Play Music, and Spotify.